I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Donald Blank. He is an acclaimed chef and restaurateur, James Beard award-winning culinary artisan, the mastermind and brainchild of Koshan. Thank you so much for joining me today, Donald. Thanks for having me. Uh, Donald, what is your assessment of the current landscape in the restaurant business in, in the wake of a year of this pandemic? Where, where do things stand now in your mind? Well, it's, uh, it's crazy because it feels like it came back it's just almost as quickly as it left. Uh, we're, we're, everything's opening up at a very rapid rate, I think, with the uh, new administration, uh, vaccines rolling out, cases dropping. And I think a, a, a long time of just fatigue from everybody not being able to go out and, and go anywhere. So it's it's in New Orleans, and I think my friends around the country are experiencing the same thing. It's it's getting very busy, very fast, and we're all um, scrambling to find help right now. And would you say that if you were speaking to the Biden administration or to public policymakers generally um, in in your state? in Louisiana or elsewhere, that you would have any specific recommendations for making this transition more seamless so that you can both preserve the public health and ramp up uh, business in your restaurants? Uh, I think in uh, New Orleans, in in any case, I'm not going to try to obviously pick a side, but I I think New Orleans handled it pretty well. I was never for a closure, uh, but we didn't ever really close down completely except for the first couple months. So a lot of people don't follow the rules when you allow people to stay open under certain circumstances. But I did always support that, Um, you know, staying open but being careful. is one of the first things we did as a restaurant group when all this started is that we immediately started writing protocols that would show that we could operate safely. And we did, actually. You know, I can, I can honestly say that looking back, all the protocols, I mean, we basically helped write them for the city and set an example of, you know, what that looks like. What does table spacing look like? What does it look like to take reservations and spread out the dining room? You know, prevent crowds from gathering. So we had a, you know, I can not, you know, I can say now, fortunately, we had almost no, you know, we had no contract tracing that we knew of. I mean, obviously, we had a we had a few employees over that year uh, contract COVID, but we traced it to um, other places like the illegal bars they were going to at night. Now, do you find that there is a a newborn enthusiasm for restaurant dining? Um, specifically, what has been your experience inside your restaurants in these last weeks? I think uh, there's a lot of tourists. There's a lot of people traveling. That's the that's the big one. Uh, secondly, I'm noticing a ton of our regulars that we haven't seen in, in uh, last year that had just been uh, vaccinated or gotten their second vaccination. So they're out and about with a vengeance right now. Remember, I got my second shot probably know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, maybe. And it all seemed to happen at once. Like every, all of our old friends we hadn't seen in a long time. We're calling and saying, hey, are y'all vaccinated? We are. We're ready to have a dinner party. So we've just seen a lot of that. So between the tourism and people being vaccinated, 
Uh, you know, it's kind of a double thing. It's like now everybody, locals and out of town, are coming back out. How has it affected, if at all, what's on your menu? Uh, not particularly. It's it's not as large as it used to be, but it's not. We haven't knocked it down that much. There are a few, uh, let's call them very labor-intensive dishes that we used to have that we've pared down for now until we get the fully 100% staffs back up. But uh, the menus are the same, um, just a little bit smaller for now. What are those dishes that you mentioned that uh, consume more energy of your staff uh, relative to other dishes? Uh, well, one one good example is the uh, the lamb lasagna that we had at Herb Saint, uh, and then Gianna. Uh, so it's just a two day process, you know, butchering the lamb, slow roasting it, pulling it, making the sauce, making a bechamel, making pasta, then assembling it. And it, uh, when I was at Herb Saint, it was one of the most popular dishes. So we were uh, constantly, you know, working on that dish in the back room. What's been your passion in, in over the course of these past months in uh, contemplating, you know, the, the kind of culinary artistry that, that you envision for the future? Uh, because you are a, a creator, a designer, in addition to a, being a proprietor. Um, has have these past months given you any insight informed the transformation of any of your dishes or concepts? Um, you know, it's kind of the other way around, honestly. I've been so involved with keeping the restaurant alive and working with the PPP money and figuring that crap out and meeting with people about tax retention credits, et cetera, et cetera, how to hire. So it's just been a lot of owner stuff. What I really want to do is get back to that creative aspect. And I, I can honestly say it's the one thing that's been wearing down on me more than anything. It's just that I, I feel like a distressed about the business end of this. Uh, when I'm, and I'm close, but, you know, we had to pull our executive management uh, down to store levels to kind of, you know, we, we retained 100 people after the shutdown. Uh, so when we reopened, we had to lean heavily on them. So and just as they go down to the next slot to get us through this, I also am going down to that slot. And it's it's kept me from being more as creative as I'd like. So my priority over the next couple of months is to switch gears and turn a lot of that over once we figure out where all this money is coming from and going to and and, and how do we settle down Uh and I hired a CEO right in the middle of all this COVID crisis in particular, so I could get back to doing more creative work. And I have a new restaurant coming. So I, I you, have to you do have a new restaurant. Tell us about the new <laughs> restaurant. coming. Um, well, we haven't released anything publicly. Um, it's in the four seasons. I can tell you that it'll be French and, and involve a, uh, a really beautiful steak section. That's about, and it's a beautiful place. It's, it's very, uh, what's the word? I don't want to use the word mid-century, but it's got a really swanky kind of vibe to it. Beautiful view of the Mississippi River on the fifth floor. Uh, yeah, it's really exciting. It's a great project. I've turned down every hotel deal, all, all of them, which is a ton of them. Uh, but something about the Four Seasons and that building in New Orleans is, uh, and the people that are behind it are fantastic. So I'm, I'm working on several menus right now, very close. 
Uh, I'm actually going to spend a couple of days um, working on them coming up here, getting them narrowed down. What do you think will be most critical to ensuring that the hospitality industry comes back strong? Uh, it already is showing those signs, as you mentioned, with tourism. But as you're contemplating a new restaurant in a hotel, hotels that have been afflicted by the virus and the immobility of populations, what's been kind of the way you've contemplated that move? Well, I contemplated it because I, I figured just like I went through Katrina and it seemed like everyone was saying, oh, it's going to be six months to a year before everything's normal again. And I didn't believe it then. And I don't, I didn't believe it um, for this. I knew it would come back. And as soon as the vaccinations were, were out, uh, that it would happen quickly. You know, it's all of the pent up demand. Uh, so I know that October, by when we're opening, is going to be crazy busy. You know, our main goal as restaurants right now, you know, the, the, the well, I think what this is highlighted because it's really interesting how any disaster kind of highlights problems, uh, especially in our industry. Uh, and and our issues are going to be redesigning the pay scale for restaurant people. And and the difficult part of redesigning a pay structure uh, is, you know, we're, we're a big company, but not that big of a company. I mean, we have six restaurants and before COVID, we have 500 employees. Now we have 300 employees. Uh, we'll probably be leaner than we were before, you know, because the goal was always to um, hopefully use less bodies and pay more. And, but that's not, you know, all these rules are hard to make because they don't apply to say, you know, the fast casual places or fast food, uh, you know, the waiter tip credit is a big hot button issue. Uh, obviously, I mean, we pay two thirteen an hour and people think that that's terrible, but you know, at the end of the day, the waiters are making, you know, somewhere between 25 and $35 an hour. Uh, and there's the laws are set in a way to where those tips cannot be distributed to the kitchen. So there's always been this inequality between the front of the house and the back of the house. And this has just made it really obvious when, uh, you know, because when the front of the house is short staffed, they make a lot more money because there's less people to share tips with. Uh, but the cooks unfortunately get the same amount of money, um, and have to do more work. And I'll, you know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm a cook, you know, I started out as a cook, so I have that background. It's always been there, but what we did right before COVID was we, we raised $2 an hour across the board for every kitchen employee, you know, putting us in a much higher bracket than the top 25% of the pay scales. Uh, and now we're looking at doing it again uh, and evening this out. Uh, while we have, you know, the opportunity to really to look at this and, and, you know, it's not about changing over the course of two weeks. What we want to do is change it for a lifetime. Does that make sense? It does make sense. How do you most strategically, is it by a, a municipal statute or a state by state or restaurant by restaurant, but that systemic inequity that you're describing between front and back of house what do you think is the most prescriptive way to approach it, to, to resolve it in a sustainable way? I think, you know, if I could do anything I wanted, 
uh, I would allow tip sharing for the kid by the back of the house. So there's there's one possible uh, way to do it right now. Uh, officially, would be if everyone made minimum wage, which is seven twenty five an hour, then you can split tips uh, with the back of the house. Now my sources tell me my legal representation says that law is not going to stay on the books very long. So there's no point in making a policy change because that would be one thing we could do. The main thing to think about when talking about uh, minimum wage, and I'm for a minimum wage hike, uh, just for the record. Nobody makes minimum wage in my restaurants, but again, I'm not every restaurant. I don't have investors. I don't have, I have two partners, uh, well, four partners if you count the other restaurants. Uh, so we don't really have to answer to anybody and we can make our own decisions. I mean, we offer 401ks and with a match, full insurance, uh, and then an insurance for all hourly people, not just the management. So we've put in a lot of these bonus plans. But the main thing, no matter if the minimum wage is 10, 12, 15, whatever it ends up being, uh, is that we need to keep the FICA tip credit in place and allow tipping. The goal is to you know even this out. Uh, I would love to see a day where cooks and waiters made the same amount of money. I think we're kind of a, uh, far away from that. You know, the difference being that, you know, a line cook position is in a, in a restaurant like mine is a, is a stepping stone to a, you know, to a much larger management slash sous chef, chef track. But my restaurants are not like every other restaurant. I mean, I'm, a lot of line cooks are not going to work to be the next chef or sous chef. They're just going to work. So I, I think there just has to be a wage readjustment and it may have to come through pricing but it definitely needs to retain that FICA tip credit and I think some tip sharing would be ideal I think that's going to be different for every restaurant but I know that if uh, if our if, if we had a very small percentage of tips going from the front to the back every person in the back of the house would get a two dollar an hour raise and if you could match that with uh, coming out of our own pockets, another two dollars. Now we're talking about a much, a much higher income for doing, you know, the work that they are. On the menu at Koshan, what have you found to be of the timeless specialties that you serve the most enduring um, in terms of uh, what folks have consumed, both in the restaurant and also purchasing nationally. Uh, I think um, the gumbo, obviously, the redfish on the half shell, and the uh, baked oysters, probably the top three things on there. And the rabbit dumplings, I always forget about that one. With with respect to the gumbo, how long did it take you to perfect that recipe? How did you arrive at that? What What was the inspiration and history of that particular recipe and dish? Well, I grew up in Louisiana, so I had it forever. Um, I grew up in the Cajun part of the state, so the, the gumbos there are not as thick as the gumbos in New Orleans. Uh, first, I find a lot of the gumbo in New Orleans to taste the same. And I don't know, I started messing around with gumbo when I was a teenager. Uh, it's just a fun thing to do, especially when I moved to, went to college in Baton Rouge. Um, it was just a fun thing to do. You know, hang out in the kitchen, you know, 
have a girl or your friends come over and drink some beer. And I just kind of kept playing with it until I just, you know, found that right flavor, the right amount of spices and the right color of the roux. And then, of course, the stocks are key. You know, I got to make a good stock. But I started that young, a long time ago. And what's been the evolution um, since you, as you say, messed around with the gumbo as a teenager? Well, um, they're all pretty set now. I mean, I, I make them kind of the same uh, as I used to, except uh, like the one that passed is a seafood gumbo. Uh, Herb Saints is generally sticks to the chicken and sausage. And uh, then you've got uh, Koshan. There's a guy, one of our, our great sous chefs there, Wes Kinney, also a Louisiana native. So he's he's made some of, of his own kind of marks on the gumbo, which I think are really, really delicious. Another signature of the region, of course, is is the jambalaya. What What is the condition of the jambalaya these days? Uh, how, how has that evolved either in your restaurant or generally in the region? Uh, I, we don't serve jambalaya except for staff meal. Um, but we do, well, actually the, the, we put it in the stuffed chicken and that's a pretty traditional concept as the jambalaya stuffed chicken. Yeah, again, I think it's jambalaya is something I don't really stray from. I make it as Cajun as possible. And less Creole, uh, New Orleans. I mean, it's all Creole actually, but the New Orleans kind usually is a little wetter, a little more tomatoey, uh, which I'm not a fan of. Uh, again, the it kind of similar is the differences in gumbo. The jambalaya I make is generally more of a browning the meat situation and getting more of that caramel caramelization that fond off the pan and scraping that up and using good sausage and. Just, you know, you get your, your color and your depth from browning the meat. What is your hope for the, the culinary future and also the, not just the culinary future, but the entire complexion of the region? Uh, you referred to Katrina earlier on. Um, when, when you talk about the economic and cultural livelihood of New Orleans and the state as a whole, um, what's your hope or what are your hopes for it? Uh, well, for the whole region, I mean, I hope it does well. <laughs> uh, I think there's a, a an opportunity like with my, from if I've learned anything from going through uh, hurricanes, it's that it there's always an opportunity. There's an opportunity to learn. There's an opportunity to start over, start fresh. Uh, and like I said, I think our our biggest challenge right now is to really you know, take care of our people. And that's always been the goal is why we took a gamble and spent a bunch of our own money in the beginning of this pandemic was to keep at least, you know, our salary people was all we could do, not knowing what was going to happen. And luckily PPP did come through the last, the last second, right. As we were ending the end of our money, Uh, but it all worked out. But I think, like I said, it's a good chance to start over and get a new perspective on, who we are as a people and the culture and how we dine out. I would love for people to be nicer to their servers. You'd be surprised at how much um, stuff, I'm trying not to curse, how much crap that our waiters have to take from people, especially with the masks and uh, just being impatient. Uh, I think it would be nice if everybody would just take a look and 
realize that those people are working their ass off and then they've been the ones dealing with the customers without their mask on while they're sitting, sitting down the whole time. They've really been on the front lines while, um, while they've been kind of treated like crap sometimes, not all the time, but there, there's always a handful of people that really give, uh, the, the servers a rough time. How do you compare the aftermath of Katrina to the aftermath of the pandemic? We're still in the midst of, of the pandemic, but for many weeks and months, New Orleans was in the midst of, of that aftermath, which was uh, devastation uh, in and around communities. Well, it's they're so different, and but you can make similarities. Uh, obviously, the unknown is like the, the biggest thing, but I can tell you that the similarities are when it comes to a close, everybody wants to get out and, and get back to their normal life. I mean, that's the biggest comparison I, I can see. Uh, it's different in the Katrina being my first time to feel like a, I was going to lose everything I ever worked for in my life. Uh, gave me some ability to go into this crisis and go, it's, it's going to be all right. You know, I survived Katrina. It's going to happen. It seems bleak, like nothing's going to work, but it comes back. Life finds a way. Uh, COVID was just longer, you know, it was a longer recovery. Uh, Katrina was just all out. And as soon as we were able to get in the kitchen, I mean, we worked short staff for a long time. Uh, I mean, our, we were, we ran herb saint with seven total people for a while. So we're short staff, but we're not like that short staff. <laughs> of course, this is lasting longer. I just think it's, it might be just a little bit longer to kind of get the systems back in order to get all the positions rehired and solidified, uh, but it's happening, you know, so. Last uh, question for you, Donald, what is the food or beverage that has most helped you get through this crisis over the last year? Red wine <laughs> <laughs> from France. <laughs> that's, that's a um, smart answer. And, and anything uh, substantive uh, that you would have with that French red wine? Well, I could make up stuff, but no. <laughs> no, varies <laughs> day to day, week to week. Donald Link, uh, acclaimed chef, uh, James Beard award-winning one, um, and the father of Koshan and a number of acclaimed restaurants in the region. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it.